we're studying through the book of uh, 1 Timothy, and we are going to be going through um, uh, the passage in 1 Timothy that is uh, chapter 2. Where do I have it? There it is. We're going to start in verse 8 and go through, through verse 15. So before we do, let me just give a little bit of summary. Uh, Timothy is part of what type, what do we call the three epistles that Timothy's a part of? Anybody know? Pastoral epistle, epistles. That's right. 50 points over here, whoever said that. So that's right. They're the pastoral epistles. Now how many epistles are there in that? Three. That's because you just heard me say that. So that's 33 points right there. Very good. Okay, so 1 Timothy is one of them. What are the other two? Titus and 2 Timothy. Very good. 25 points each. There you go. So um, that's the group of letters. Paul's written these letters, and they're, they're a little bit different because they're, they're written to, to individuals. But even though they're written to individuals, they're meant to be read publicly. So they were there to, in, to, to encourage Timothy, his son in the faith, and, and Titus, his disciple that he's brought up. But they're also meant for the church to read as a whole, to see that what they're teaching and instructing is coming from him, it's being passed on, and, and uh, to support them in their ministry. So, uh, and mostly what they do is they're, they're called pastoral letters. Paul's pastoring them. They're, they're, he's, he's setting things in correction. In, in, second Tim, in First Timothy, what we have is we got these false teachers who are teaching myths. They're teaching speculations. They're, they're teaching false ways to connect to God. They're, they're using the Bible, but they're using it wrongly. And, and Paul says, let me tell you what sound teaching is. Sound teaching is this. Sound teaching is that Jesus Christ ransomed himself to death. He's the one mediator between God and man. And when we look into the scriptures, we don't find speculations and myths and all these things. We find that Jesus is the way that we connect to him. And when we look into the scriptures, the scriptures are a mirror to our own heart. And when we look in our own heart apart from Christ, what we see is a, a corrupt human heart. And he says, if you want an example, look no further than myself. But the grace of God has overflowed in mercy to me and has given me this task that, that not only may I be restored to him in his grace, he's given me this ministry that he desires to restore the whole world to him. That is our goal. That is what we're called to. And so, Timothy, you need to fight the good fight of faith. You need to fight the good fight. You need to make sure your faith is not shipwrecked. You need to make sure that the faith of the, those in the, in, the, in the body are not shipwrecked because there are false teachers who want to shipwreck your faith. I mean, to know that's true. I mean, to know that we live in a world right now that's filled with darkness, death, and fear. And we're called as representatives of Jesus Christ with the gospel to bring light, life, and love. How many know that right now, we live in a world that says that human life is meaningless? We live in a culture, we live in a society that wants to break us up into tribal groups and pit us one against one another for power. We live in a society that says hierarchy and order are all considered to be oppressive power structures, and we need a complete revolution, we need to throw that off. We live in a society where the most basic fundamental building block of society that represents all of this is the traditional nuclear family, and we want to destroy that. We live in a time and a culture where marriage no longer has meaning or purpose. 
And we can redefine it to be whatever we want it to be, or we could just simply do away with it altogether. To be a man or to be a father is to be a buffoon, to be toxic, or to be oppressive. To be a woman is totally dependent on your own subjective feelings with no basis in reality. To be a child, your innocence must be destroyed and your feelings and imagination are more important than the wisdom, guidance, and nurture and teaching of your parents. Not one thing I've said is hyperbole. That's the culture we live in. That's what we're faced with today. It wasn't unlike what Paul and Timothy were faced with. They had the same kinds of cultural issues, same kinds of cultural struggles going on in their time that we have today. The same things that were destroying families, the same things that were destroying lives. It hasn't changed since the garden. It's very simple. Has God said? You see, so these passages we're going to look at today, we're going to look at some things, and these are, these are passages that the church has struggled with over the years. Some, some have been misused, and some have been abused, and some have been used wrongly. But let me tell you what Satan does. Satan wants to do this. Satan wants to take Scripture that's abused and use it as an excuse so that we disuse Scripture. He wants to take passages that have been used wrongly and use that as an excuse to ignore it entirely. But we have a goal. We have a goal, and that is to live a real life of faith. And what does that look like? It looks like love. It looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. It looks like a life that's laid down sacrificially for our brother and sister. And I'm here to tell you that begins in the home, and we'll see that. So... Men and women in ministry is what we're, is the kind of the big topic for this morning. Men and women in ministry. We're only going to cover a couple of verses because there's a lot in here. But I'm going to read the whole passage first, and then I'll come back and break it down. This is the, the passage we're looking at. It says, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm telling you where I am. I'm in 1 Timothy 2. I'm hearing my wife right now. <laughs> so first Timothy, we, okay. So our anniversary is just a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, I found this awesome card. And, and no kudos that I gave her a card. I just got lucky, right? So, but I found this awesome card. And on the front of it, it says, the two of you are made for each other. And it's this older couple. And they're all kind of dressed up really wild and funky. And they're blowing bubbles and all this. And then it says on the inside, either that or you've lived together so long, you're picking up each other's traits. And I went, that's it. That's it right there. <laughs> so anyway, I, I digress. All right, so. This is in 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 2. I'm starting in verse 8. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Verse 9. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, 
not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is, the, as is proper for women who affirm that they worship God. A woman should learn in silence with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. For Adam was created first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, holiness, with good sense. So I'm about to teach where angels won't tread. <laughs> a few people's nervous laughter went through the room. It's like a marriage, right? <laughs> right before they say I do. Um, we dealt last week with verse 8. I brought in verse 8 because I want to put it in, in the whole thing. And, uh, and so when we're looking at this passage, there's a few questions we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask, whenever we're looking at Scripture, what applies to that situation that Paul's addressing or anybody in Scripture is addressing in that situation? What applies universally beyond that situa situation? And what is the universal principle we can take from it for our lives? Our goal is what? Our goal is to live out Scripture because when we live out the purpose that God has given us, the meaning that God has given us, we live the purpose of God in our generation and we make a difference. One amen. You don't think so? The Holy Spirit empowered 120 people and changed the world. The Holy Spirit empowered 120 people and changed the world. Guess who that was? That's you and me. That's you and me. All right, so this is what it says to the men. Uh, and again, we dealt with this last week, so I'm just going to be very brief on it. It says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, uh, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And when you break that down, it says in every place. That means this is universal. He's applying this to all men. Now, the word for men and the word for women throughout this passage are notoriously difficult. Why? Because it's the same word for men as it is for husband. It's the same word for women as it is for wife. And so people go back and forth. Was he talking about men? He's talking about husbands. Is he talking about wives? Is he talking about women? Well, in his day, guess what? They were the same thing. Oh, it got real quiet on that one. All right, let me keep going. So this is men, calling men. He says, what, what are they to have? So when it says that they should pray lifting holy hands, and we, we break it down. Again, we did it last week. It means what? It means to have a sacrificial life that's dependent on God. You're dependent on God. You're focused on others, and you're doing good works. That's what lifting holy hands actually means, doing good works. And it says this, that, that they are controlling their disagreeable nature. How do we know that? It says, without anger and quar or quarreling. So you need to take that disagreeable nature you have, and you need to get it under control. And what it looks like, it looks like living in patience, living with kindness. I love to say this. This is, this is, okay, this is for anybody that's married. You ready? Are you ready? This is free. You can take this with you. There's never a reason to be unkind. There's never a reason to be unkind. I'm going like this right now. And, and the third one is forgiveness. Living with patience, living with kindness, living with forgiveness. That's how you live without anger. Those three things. And then it says to be gentle and meek, self-controlled. That's what it means to not live in quarreling. It means to take all of that energy, all of that, that, that uh, drive inside of you, and bottle it up into self-control and let it come out in a way that's godly. 
Oh, but I can't do that. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. That's what Jesus did. That's what it says. He was meek. He was meek. That doesn't mean he was weak. All right. So now we move on to the next verse. Next verse, this is likewise also. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. All right, so what's he talking about here? Because obviously today there's things here when he says likewise, likewise means this is universal, this applies. In the same way this was universal for men, this applies to all women. But, But what's going on here? Because today we wouldn't say, you know, that it's ungodly for a, for a woman to braid her hair. Or she's got, you know, a string of pearls on. We wouldn't go that that's ungodly necessarily. Right? What's happening here? So in Greco-Roman culture, now we don't know for a fact what was going on. But we do know this. Okay? The reason why we don't know for a fact is because the text doesn't tell us for a fact. But we study culture and we know this is what's going on. What was going on is there was something called the new woman in upper elite Roman culture. In this upper elite Roman culture, the new woman was coming out in a sexual revolution. She was coming out and saying, I'm throwing off all of the traditions and all of the ways in which I'm supposed to live in impropriety, and I'm going to dress in a way that is sexual. I'm going to dress in a way that shows off my quote-unquote womanhood, and and it created a stir. They have Greco-Roman writers writing at the time going, this is a destruction of culture. This is a destruction of values. Even There was even a law that came from Caesar saying that, 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 uh, uh, saying that this isn't right. And so what's Paul concerned with here? What's Paul concerned with is that the, the ladies do not, uh, uh, don't become culture warriors, become Jesus warriors. He says, what is the proper way to live the proper way to live is to be modest. And to be modest isn't about keeping temptation from a man. It's about worshiping Jesus. Live in a way that worships Jesus. Live in a way that honors him. Don't do anything that hurts the gospel. Because that's our goal. And, 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 and there were certain keys. If they dressed a certain way, it would cue in that, oh, you belong to that group. Guys, it's a fact. Young people, it's a fact. That way we dress triggers what we think. That's not the way I used to think. I used to think, oh, I get to be myself. I can do what I want. No, I want to do what Jesus wants. I want to represent the gospel, and that's Paul's heart. That's what's going on here. So the purpose is worship. And it universally applies. So when he says uh, what is right for women to profess godliness, to profess godliness, think of godliness. What is godliness? Godliness is the outward life that represents the inward heart. If you say you have an inward heart that's righteous, an inward heart that's full of faith, then outwardly you'll look like a godly person. That's what he's saying. And and what is that going to look like? It's going to look like good works. So in the end, he actually ends up saying the same thing to the men as he did to the women. Live with good works. Live with good works. But he addresses them uniquely to what they're dealing with in their time. All right, let's keep going. So we get to this next verse. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissive. You can't even say it. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. We'll say it one more time. Submissiveness. 
Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. This is a difficult passage. That should be funny. Now, and and joking aside, the reason why it's difficult is um, because the words in here can have more than one meaning. Is it addressing a specific situation in Ephesus, or is this universal? Is Is it teaching that men and women are not equal? That's the big question. It's been used. There are, how many know that there are black marks, there are pock marks on the history of the church where the history of the church has not done what the Bible has said. We've, we've done all kinds of, there's a book called Our Hands Are Stained with Blood by Michael Brown. Don't read it. I'm saying that in reverse psychology, you know. Uh, what, what, you know, that has been used an excuse for abuse. It has been used in an excuse to treat one another un, uh, unrighteously and unrightly in, in all manner of evil ways. It's led to wars. It's led to slavery. It's led to all kinds of things. Not the least of which is treating women wrongly. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to address is that what the Bible teach. Does the Bible teach that men and women are unequal? So we're just going to... We're just going to look at this briefly. I'm going to submit to you. Oh, let me make sure I say this right. I'm going to submit to you that unequivocally there is an equality between men and women in the scriptures. There is, there is, God does not look at a man or look at a woman and see either one as having a higher or greater value than the other. They are all his created imagers. So let's just look at some verses. This is equal in creation or equal in essence. It says this, then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over all creeping things that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's making no distinction between the two in their ontological, their, their being, their essence as being an imager of God. We are all called to image God. Peter says the same thing when he's talking to husbands. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. They are your equal heir. Now, we're not going to deal with equal vessel here. I know a lot of people have questions about that. It's actually a, a very good and edifying verse. Ask me in Connect Group. This is a commercial for Connect Group. Come to Connect Group. We'll break it open. All right. So, but what he is saying is we are all equal heirs. Paul puts it. Paul, the one who's supposed to be the misogynistic one, says in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. God doesn't see a man or a woman as better or less in his eyes. Period. Done. So, number two. Everybody agree? Number two, we are equal in parenting. I would say that's probably not true, but not in the way that most people would think. But anyway, this is unique here. Because what I'm about to read you, it's going to seem like, okay, well, that's no big deal, of course. That's, you know, what's what's so big about that? This is the only document in the entire ancient Near East that says something like this. Proverbs. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Proverbs chapter 1. 
Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Do you know what that means? That means she had to be taught to begin with. There's nothing in the ancient Near East that puts teaching coming from the mother like the Bible. So those who say the Bible is misogynistic and don't have equality have not read Proverbs. Number three, equal in prayer. How many remember Rachel was childlessness? She wanted a child. And she goes to her husband Jacob, give me a child, give me a child. And Jacob goes, I'm not God. Does he bother to pray? No, she does. And what happens? Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. They are equal in worship. Here's, here's a Samuel recording this. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. Leviticus, when it comes to offerings, and when the day of her, uh, days of her purifying are complete, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, a burnt offering. She's bringing the offering. In Numbers chapter 6, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, catch this, whether a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite. Did you know women can make Nazarite vows? Most people think, well, that's just a men thing. In Acts, we see the same thing in worship. On the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gates to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke at the, to the women who had come together. Paul purposely went to the place where the women were gathering in worship to preach the gospel to them. He didn't see them as less. He didn't see them as somehow not equal. And there's even more behind that passage than that. And then finally, uh, finally one other area we want to mention and that is equal in spiritual gifts. So you've got, in Exodus 15, you have Miriam. How many know who Miriam is? So Miriam was Moses' sister. See, so Aaron was his brother. Miriam was his sister. Well, what it tells us here is not uh, um, Miriam. It says Miriam, the sister of Aaron, was a prophetess. And she's out prophesying, and all the women are going out with her. In Judges, it talks about Deborah the prophetess. How many have heard of Deborah before? Most of us have heard of Deborah before. In Kings. Now, this is, um, this is an interesting passage. So, the, the Israel had gotten dark for a long time. And they had ignored the word of God. In fact, they lost the word of God. And there's this young guy named Josiah who becomes king. And he does a restoration of the temple. And they're in there digging around in the temple. And they, describe, they, they find these scrolls. And they go, oh my goodness, these are scrolls. I wonder if this is the Bible. And so they're going, we're going to take it to a prophet, inquire of the Lord. Well, Jeremiah was alive then. Zephaniah was alive then. Did they take him to Jeremiah, Zephaniah? No, they took him to a prophetess named Huldah. Say, Huldah, is this the scriptures? Because you had, you had prophetesses who had the word of God, just like you had men who were prophets. Um, uh, Joel, what did Joel say? Anybody know what Joel said? The Holy Spirit will fall on who? Ooh. Do what? Sons and daughters. Okay, that's 75 points. You were the one who got that. The Holy Spirit will fall on your sons and daughters, it says in Joel. 
And then, and then if you go through Romans, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but you go through Romans, what do we see? We see there was uh, uh, Phoebe who was a deaconess. Um, we see uh, this husband, probably a husband and wife couple. We're not 100% sure, but probably a husband and wife couple. Andronicus and Hunia. These were fellow kinsmen and fellow prisoners with Paul. And they were known among the apostles, which means they were most likely missionaries that were, that were going out. Um, you've got Mary in there. As a, uh, was a, was, um, not the Marys we think of, but another Mary who was a hard, hard worker. You've got Priscilla and Aquila who are fellow workers with Paul. You, the point is this, is that the Holy Spirit, when he gifts people, he sees, he gifts as he wills, the scripture tells us. The Holy Spirit gifts as he wills. So the question isn't whether or not men or women are more, um, uh, are more anointed. The question, we are all equal in our anointing. So then what's the issue? Let's go back. Let me, let me, let me say this first. Let me say this. I started off with a fact. I started off with the fact that in our time, the collective problems that we are facing, the collective issues we are facing as the body of Christ is going to take every single one of us in the fullness of who God has created us to be to live out our purpose in our generation. This is the point. This is the point. It's going to take every man. It's going to take every woman. It's going to take every child calling on the Lord to be the fullest of who we are to make a difference in our generation like David did in his. So anybody who tells you that the scriptures see an inequality is wrong. So how do we take this verse then? Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So here's, here's how I break this down and how I look at this. So obviously it, when it says quiet, it doesn't mean she never speaks. Why? Because Paul talks about women prophesying, about women praising. So what does it mean? She has a quiet, submissive spirit. She's not stirring things up. She is a submissive person. Like we're all called to be. Number two, what about this teach or exercise authority? So some people try to break it down into two things. I take it as one. Okay, because a lot of times Paul takes it as one. And there is one thing, one thing that Paul appoints only to men in the church. And that's overseers and elders. You never see a woman appointed as an overseer and elder. What's going on in the book of Timothy? What's going on in the book of Timothy is you got false teachers. What's Paul want Timothy to do? Raise up godly teachers. And that's what comes next. That's actually the next passage. Raise up godly teachers. And who are they to be? They are to be men with godly character and the gifting of pastoring. Now, see, we make an issue. Can women be pastors or not pastors? And we make the reason why that's a, a, an issue is we mistake the scriptures. It's not about pastoring. It's about eldering. It's about being an elder or an overseer. And the only thing, the only time you see an elder or overseer in the scripture, you see it's a, it's a man. Now why? Why would God do that? Well, it goes with creation. It goes all the way back to the beginning. You see, I started with a problem that we're facing in culture, the tearing down of the family. God calls the family of God, the body of believers, to be his household. We are the household of God. If we are the household of God, we are to look like the family. What is the family to look like? Well, that's a big question. But Paul deals with it. Peter deals with it. 
Let me tell you, I'm going to cut to the quick. What the family looks like is a reversing of the curse. What was the curse? Women, you will bear child and you will have pain in childbirth. And your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Husbands, you will work like you're supposed to, but the ground will be full, filled with, with uh, thorns and thistles. And it will be hard for you to provide for your family in doing what you're called to do. Now when he reverses the curse, what, what was created in the curse? Conflict. Your desire shall be for your husband. That means it's the same language it talks about when sin's desiring Cain in chapter 4. It says, sin shall desire you, but you shall rule over it. It's the same language. What is he saying? He's saying as a result of the curse, there will be conflict. There will be conflict in the home. There will be conflict in society. There will be conflict. And what does Jesus Christ do? He says, he says, he reverses the cursed. Wives, submit to your husbands. The curse just got reversed. Husbands, love your wives and be a servant leader to your wife just like Christ. The curse just got reversed. You see, when the church does what the, the word of God instructs the church to do, the curse that is on humanity is reversed. When we live that out, not only in our families, because the only way we are the household of God if we, is if we are godly households. The only way we are the household of God is if we are godly households. And when we do the very thing that God has created us to do, which is what? Cooperate, complement, and complete one another, then we demonstrate to the world that the curse they're living under can be reversed. That the death, the darkness, and the fear they're living under can become life and light and love. That's what Paul is saying here. He's not subordinating a class of people. He's saying when we live the way that Jesus Christ intended for us when he created us, in this cooperating relationship, demonstrating a, a submissive, uh, a, a, and I'm going to say this, it's a voluntary submission. Why do I say that? Because when the husband violates or abuses his authority, he loses it. A woman's not required to sit under a man who's abusive. Now, getting into an argument isn't abusive. But there is a real thing where people have been told that. But nonetheless, when a wife submits to her husband, and when a husband lays his life down for his wife, and when you have a church, when you have, we'll see this next week, where the elders are laying their life down for the flock, like Jesus laid his life down for the flock. And when you have every man and every woman and every child seeking the fullness of the gift of Christ in their life, we change society. Instead of arguing over what role I should be playing, how hungry are we to take death and turn it into life? We want to fight over a title and not realize people are dying around us if we would but be the church. Now, are there legitimate beefs and griefs? There are. And that's what we're trying to address even right now. 
Should they be brought up? Should they be head on, head forward, head first? Yes, they should be. Should we be constantly humble? That's what it means to be a good leader is to be humble. That's what it means. To constantly submit ourselves to correction. Why? Because Jesus is glorified when we do. He's glorified when I get it right. And he's glorified when I fix it after I got it wrong. Amen?